Well, good morning, Forefront Church. How are you doing? All right. Hey, my name is Mitch. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have been deep into Revelation. I've been loving the series that we've been doing. Um, specifically, I uh, this morning get to preach on Revelation 17 and 18. So if you would open up your Bibles there, you could follow along in the YouVersion Bible app. You can scan the QR code in front of you uh, and get there. But as we've been going through this series, as I've been studying Revelation, as I get to this passage, I realize, I told Pastor Drew this morning, I will be a I'm a three-pepper take this morning. I'm not full 10 peppers, all right? So it's a little bit spicy, not too spicy. And so in order to start us off with a, a little bit of spiciness, as I've been reflecting on Revelation, I figure the best way to communicate what I've discovered so far in Revelation is through Revelation memes. And so here are a few of my favorite Revelation Bible memes, if we put the first one up on the screen. So life hack, you don't have to silence your phone in church if you just have tone that says amen. All right, so there's your life hack. We'll start off with that one. That's a zero pepper take, all right? So a little life hack for you. Let's go to the next one here. And when somebody asked me a question about Revelation, right, that where, where does, you got me, I don't, I don't know. So that maybe that's you this morning. You're like, hey, I'm in Revelation. We got bulls and trumpets and brides and, and women and beasts and all sorts of stuff that maybe you were hope to clar- clarify a little bit of that this morning in the next couple of weeks as well. Let's go to the next one here. Uh, so uh, uh, Pastor Darren mentioned this a couple of weeks ago that he, like, it is not Revelations, it's revelation, right? John had one revelation. He didn't have multiple revelations. Let's go to the next one. All right, so this is from Mulan, right? Reading through the revelation for the first time, like, like uh, mysterious as the dark side of the moon. I'll do my, uh, yeah, thank you, thank you. The, the next one I think is my favorite. This cracks me up. There's no way things can get worse than 2020. The book of Revelation. Uh, <laughs> All right, let's go. What, a couple more, a couple more. Trying to interpret the book of Revelation. We got my boy SpongeBob there. Uh, that was me this week. Um, <laughs> diving through beasts and numbers and all that stuff. Uh, every time I read the book of Revelation, it's some sort of elvish. I can't, I can't read it. A uh, couple more. So uh, Michael Scott from The Office here, uh, reading through Revelation for the first time. Like, I understand nothing. I understand nothing. Uh, we're just going to keep going. We're going to keep going. Uh, parents in the 30s, let's buy a house. Me in my 30s, another chapter in Revelation is unfolding. <laughs> uh, we got uh, one does not simply read Revelation and predict the final day of the world like some have done, right? Uh, it's going to be at some point, and, and we're, not, we're not doing that. And then the last one, uh, here's another life hack for you. Crocs are the real mark of the beast. If you are, Okay. If you are wearing Crocs this morning, if your loved one is wearing Crocs, I'm not making fun of you, okay? I'm just telling you that everyone else is. <laughs> All right, so there's, there's some spicy memes for you this morning. In, in the book, uh, in the beginning of the book, as is, is we're opening up Revelation, what God revealed to me is this need to be humble, right? We see the king on the throne, and what God really brought to me was this idea of being humble, to humble yourself before the king. There's, there's no power struggle here. And, and then the last few weeks as we've, we've come up to this passage, what God's revealed to me is this need, this pressing need on my heart for faithfulness. 
And God desires faithfulness. As we've been looking at these things, we see that God is unchanging. From Genesis to Revelation, God is unchanging. He is the faithful one. He is the one standing at the altar. We are unfaithful and just dive into his faithfulness. And we're, we're in a day and age where it's hard to find faithfulness, where true faithfulness is hard to find. We have a tendency to be faithful to the things that really don't matter much. I was thinking the other day, you know, I, I've loved the iPhone for as long as I can remember. From the transition from the BlackBerry to the iPhone or the Crackberry to the iPhone, I was so into the next version of the iPhone, right? I always had to have the newest phone until the last couple of years where the iPhones really haven't gotten any better. It's like, oh, we've moved the button from the side to the bottom, pay another $2,000, or we've added another camera that really doesn't do anything. Your pictures still look the same because it's this big. Uh, so I, so I've, I've moved away from that, but I was faithful for a long time. I had some brand loyalty to the iPhone. I would never buy anything else, and now I'm like, eh. Is there something better out there? There are now phones that you can unfold. Have you seen those? I was at a, at a dinner. I'd never seen this before in my life. Buddy pulls out his phone to show a picture of his kids, and he unfolds his phone and shows me this picture on this massive tablet. It was amazing. Maybe I'm just easily impressed. Come on. Okay, church, fine. And go to the next meme. Oh, no, kidding. Oh, no. Uh, we're loyal to our teams, Right, we suffer through uh, some. I watched the Broncos preseason game last night. If you anybody suffer through that, just me. No, nope. uh, I'm a martyr for that. But in my life, I've been faithful to. I've been faithful to this team. My in my life, Drew, I've seen seven Super Bowls. Seven, uh, seven Super Bowls, and uh, three of them we've won. I've been loyal to my team, and in some ways, it's it's easy to be a loyal football fan. Um, and I realize in this world we live, faithfulness to Jesus is, is hard to find. It's, it's harder to be faithful in the things that matter, right? Uh, not just, you know, as I think of my marriage, it's, it's easy for me, right, to, to be faithful in the idea of I'm not going to cheat. It's more difficult to be faithful in, okay, am I really keeping all those vows every single day? Right, it, those things are more difficult. It's it's difficult to be faithful to my. Amen. <laughs> I knew what was going to happen. The Lord told me I had a vision. He took me into the desert and the phone. Uh, man, some heresy is being spewed this morning. Um, it's it's difficult to be faithful to these kids when I come home from work and I I'm just tired and. They just want to snuggle or wrestle. It's difficult to say, okay, what does being faithful to them look like in that, in that moment? I'm faithful to them. I'm not starting another family, but what does it look like to be faithful to them in that? It, it's, it's difficult to be faithful to calling. For me, in the last couple years, the, the city of Denver, I've always loved Denver. I, I care about Denver. I grew up here, called to this city, but that calling the last couple of years has been tested where I just look at our city and I see the depravity and I see the struggle and I see just how much easier it would be if we just moved somewhere else. And the grass is greener on the other side. It, it's difficult to be faithful to calling. And, and to me, in the book of Revelation, in the pages of Revelation, regardless of your viewpoint, this idea of faithfulness is over 
and over and over again. And so a little bit of my viewpoint so you can get a little context. I am what's called a futurist. So I read Revelation in what I believe it's his historical, literal context. So I see these things as future. I think that the thesis statement that, that Jesus has at the beginning that he's revealing what is to come is means that he's revealing what is to come. So I see these things as future. That being said, I, I, I view Israel as literal. So those 144,000, I view that as literal Israel. And the you see that the way that plays out in the, the uh, nation, the woman giving birth to the Messiah, right? I see that as Israel giving birth to the Messiah. But either way, you read Revelation. No matter what your viewpoint is on Revelation, you see over and over the faithfulness of Jesus, And so what we see in Revelation chapter 17 is that the people are given a choice. People are given a choice. Are you going to be faithful to Jesus? Are you going to participate in what the the author calls adultery, spiritual adultery? And you may say right now, like, I I would never, I would never do that. But I think what happens in our lives is this slow drift, right? The economy hard, and it becomes easy to start to cut corners to figure out how you're going to get by. But your marriage becomes difficult, and you start to cut corners, and you start to, start to drift a little bit. You start to compromise. Your family is difficult. The, what are those things that cause you to waver? And most of the time, it, for a lot of people, it's a slow drift. It's not a sudden thing. Most people don't wake up one morning and you so, say, you know what, I'm just going to wreck my marriage. But what they do is they start to participate in the slow, a slow drift. Well, I'm going to make a little compromise here. I'm going to cut a corner here. I'm, I'm not going to engage here. And it becomes a slow drift. And what started out as just a, a little bit of unfaithfulness leads to full-on a drift full, leads to full-on unfaithfulness. What we see is that every great fall is the result of a hundred bad decisions, a thousand bad decisions, where you start to just justify over time what happens over time. No one wakes up and says, you know what, I just, I want to get a divorce. No one wakes up and you know, says, you know what, sounds great, cocaine and homelessness. No, but it's a, a result of a thousand bad decisions, a thousand compromises. And so as I read the book of Revelation, I, I believe that what God wants us to do is to be faithful in, the, in a time of unfaithfulness. And I think what God is doing through these stories is that what God is showing us is that God wants you, he wants me, to be the type of people who aren't surprised when we are faithful who aren't surprised when we are faithful, but have a deep, continual belonging to the God who is continually faithful. And so if you would, Revelation chapter 17, we're gonna dive right into it. It says, John the Revelator says this, he says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed spiritual or sexual immorality, sorry, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. 
The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Let's not get too far into that. Basically, she was, she was wealthy. She had it all. She was an economic power, right? She had these jewels and pearls and holding in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And her, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And John says, and when I saw her, I, marvel, I marveled greatly. And so in chapter 16, we see the, the, the angel opens the seventh bowl, right? So, so the, the worst of all the judgments, he opens up the seventh bowl. And then in chapters 17 and 18, we see this Babylon that is explained and then judged. And then Jesus comes back. So the final step in what God is revealing to his people is he's revealing what is wrong with the world, and then he's making it right again. This is this final step before Jesus' return and the destruction of Babylon. And all throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, you get a tale of two cities. You get a tale of two cities. Jerusalem, right, which is put up as the city of peace, and then you get the city of Babylon, which is the city of destruction, the city of idolatry, the city of sexual immorality. You get these two pictures all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And it's this common theme here all throughout Scripture. But here's what's interesting is that the literal Babylon was conquered by Silas the Great, uh, Cyrus the Great in 539 B.C., this was way before Revelation was, was written. And so the, the picture, though, is this person, this, this woman, who is all about economic gain. Check out what, what verse 2 says. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. The kings of the earth have become so intoxicated with her that they've shifted their gaze from God and shifted their gaze into what the, the revelator calls sexual immorality or spiritual adultery. They move their gaze from Jesus to other things. And to be honest, I, I believe this is happening everywhere. I believe that our, our culture is designed to seduce us away from things, from a relationship with Jesus. And, and let me use this example. Okay, here's where I get to the three pepper take here. Uh, let me use this example. In the 13th century, a poet coined the phrase, the lesser of two evils, which is basically like this. If you have a choice, a moral decision to make that both choices are bad. Okay, you come over here, your decision is bad. You come over here, your decision is bad. The, the moral thing to do, the right thing to do is to choose the lesser of the two evils. You probably heard this before when we get to voting season, right? Election season, that your choice is dependent, we have two just, just bad choices, right? Two evil choices, and it, it's on you to choose the lesser of the two evils. And throughout history, countries and even political parties have villainized their opponents and called the other party evil. Throughout history, every other country is evil, and our country is the one who is not evil, and we justify our not being evil because we are the lesser of the evils, right? And so all throughout history, it goes back. When Thomas Jefferson was running against Adams at the beginning of our, our country, he said this. He was running against Adams. This is what he said about Adams, that Adams is a blind 
bald, crippled, toothless man who wanted to start a war with France. And so Jefferson says, okay, Adams is, look at him. Like he's gonna start a war if we come, if you vote for him. And then in response, Adams said that if Jefferson got elected, murder, robbery, rape, adultery, and incest would be openly taught and practiced. The earth would be filled filled with cries of distress and the soil soaked with blood and the nation black with crime. Each side portraying the other side as evil. This doesn't happen today, right? (laughs) This doesn't happen today. We don't do this at all. So when faced with a moral dilemma between two seemingly bad choices, what do you do? What do you do? When faced between two evil choices. What do you do? I think the Bible is clear. Let me put up a couple of scriptures up here. In James, it says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Not choose between two bad things, but him who knows the right thing to do. Do it. If you fail to do it, it's a sin. First Thessalonians 5.22, it says to abstain from every form of evil. Abstain from every form of evil. So, so what do you do when faced with two bad choices? The scripture is full of stories who are who have people who are confronted with two bad choices. And let me just share a couple of them. Daniel. Daniel, when he was told that if he kept praying, that he would be thrown into a den full of lions, right? And so he has two choices here. He says, okay, if I stop praying, I will be, I will be okay. I'll be able to live. And, and it's... I could still pray like in my heart and in my mind, right? It's just, just publicly. I could still justify, justify it, right? We, we do that all the time. He justifies it. Well, if I stop, but if I keep praying, I'm being thrown in a den full of lions. So, so what does he do? He doesn't, he doesn't choose the lesser of two evils. He chooses the right thing to do. In, in the same book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they refused to bow to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. They refused to bow to him. And, and so they could have just... Bow down. And the, the command was simple, right? Just bow down when the trumpet blows. You can, you can worship how you want to worship. Just when the trumpet blows, just bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, right? Just, just pledge allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. Just when that happens, just, just do that. And what they did was they said, no, I would we'd rather die in a furnace than bow down to this king. They could have said, God, you know that I really worship you. God, you know in my heart I, I worship you. Why, why does it matter if I bow down? I really don't mean the bow. It's just, it's just a thing that I, I do, right? This is what they said in Daniel 3. It said, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. I love that. This faith in God that, listen, I'm going to choose the right thing, no matter what choices here on earth, even if it causes us, right? God, we know that you'll save us. But then I love, I love what he, they, they say next. They say, but if not, if, if God doesn't deliver us from the fire, if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They chose, when, when given the choice of the lesser of two evils, they chose the right thing. They, cho- they chose to abstain from the the choices that they were given, which leads me to the first thing that I want to bring up is that the lesser of two evils is still evil. The lesser of two evils is still evil. Followers of Jesus are supposed to move through this world in a different way. We're supposed to look different. We're supposed to act different. 
Sometimes the decision is, is found in seeking the Holy Spirit's face. What, God, what do you want me to do in this? And which direction to go? Sometimes following Jesus and following the right way mean, means abstaining altogether. Christians cannot be a part. We cannot be a part of making one side our enemy. We cannot participate in that. Specifically in the voting example, you need to ask not, is this the lesser of two evils, but is my vote and participation aligning me with a worldview that doesn't, that, that doesn't compromise my testimony and my faithfulness? Is my decision prayer subject? Is God grieved at my decision? And I understand, listen, I understand that no candidate is perfect. No political party is perfect. They're not supposed to be. But if we let go of this idea that we're supposed to participate in the lesser of two evils and participate in God, what do you want me to do every single day and every single moment? Because the, the spirit of let's seduce the people of God away from faithfulness is very, very real, isn't it? Our world is full of biblical concepts that want to pull us away from biblical Christianity. There is a, soul, a battle right, happening, right now happening for the soul of Christianity, specifically in America. I don't, I don't think this is happening in the East. I believe it's happening right now in America. What is the soul of Christianity? What is it all about? If you were to define Christianity right now in America, what would that look like? Would it look like alignment to a party either, either side? Would it look like, you know, uh, big uh, marketing campaigns? What, what does the soul of Christianity look like? And this is what the, the woman seeks to do. Is she seeks to pull these, these people, these kings, away from biblical Christianity to commit spiritual adultery. And this prophecy, like most other prophecies in Scripture, is a, is a picture of what will happen in the future, but also a question to the reader right now. I believe that this is a picture of what will happen, right? Uh, I was taught in seminary that, that prophecy is like looking at a mountaintop. So let, let's imagine the prophet, the revelator John, is over here and he's looking at these, these mountains, right? And so what, what the, the prophet sees is the tallest mountain, right? The, the prophet sees the mountain that he's looking at. Just like when you're driving from Kansas, anyone done that? Driving from Kansas to Denver, you see the, the high mountains, but what you don't see is maybe the, the mountains in between. And so that's what I think the revelator is doing is, is he's looking out and he's seeing the mountaintop, but he's also applying it to his context right now. And I believe that this is the question that John is asking the readers then in about 90 AD. This is what I believe he is asking us now. This is the question I believe that he will ask at the end times. It's simply this. Where am I cheating on God with the affections of my heart? Whew. Three pepper take. Okay, I'm not going all 10. I'm going three. Where am I cheating on God with the affections of my heart? Have you ever thought about sin like that? God knows that we can allow our affections to get a little bit sideways. He wants us to be faithful to him. And so what is happening here is that the, the woman is getting these people drunk, these kings drunks with the, the wine, it says, of her fornication. All the rulers of earth are fornicating with her. And then John says this. It says, and, and he carried me away. So he was amazed by this. And then it says, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names 
and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand the golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. By the way, it's called the name of mystery for a reason, right? Because it's supposed to be a mystery. It's not, you know, it's not literal here. It's like, okay, what is, what's the mystery? There, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, it marveled greatly. This reminds me of what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 51, 7. It says, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine. Therefore, the nations went mad. People get caught up trying to figure out who Babylon is. Her name is mystery for a reason, but it's clear here that the application is for the world. The application's for the world. You see this, and you ask, okay, God, what do you want me to do with this? What do you want me to do with this? And I think the question is, is what pulls me from Jesus? What is pulling me from Jesus? What seduces me away from Jesus? What causes me to lose my passion for Jesus? What I love about the revelation that, that John the Revelator is that he explains all of this. And it says this, it says, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast and the, the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers of earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also the seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. And as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they are... And the beast will hate the prostitute, and they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So the, the angel reveals all these things, right? And so it's super clear exactly what he's talking about. <laughs> now, I think like Darren said, I, I believe it was uh, week one that uh, these things very much made sense to the, the readers. and Maybe they don't make as much sense to her. Just a couple of things that I want to point out real quick. It says that um, the, the beast will hate the prostitute and they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. That is so much our, our political system, right? Where we say, okay, we're, we're going to put this person, this person gives us power, and as soon as we get the power, we just devour them and, and continue on. John is amazed, and the angel said, well, why are you amazed? 
Let me, let me show this to you. And, and we see in verses 8, 10 through 14, it speaks about the beast. And then 9, 15, 18, it talks about the woman. And for the author, John, that makes a lot of sense. But nowadays, you cannot find two scholars at all that agree with what this means. One, you know, you, you may be firm in one camp, and then uh, another camp starts to shoot holes in your tent, and then you look over and have holes. There are just holes and arguments all over the place. One, one thinks they have it figured out, and then they, they go to the other one, and it, it's not figured out. And so the beast, right, most likely the Antichrist from chapter 13, then represents Rome. Most people believe that this represents Rome because uh, also has seven kings, five of which have fallen, the other has not yet come. Uh, come. And, and whether you're a futurist like me or not, or you believe all these things have already happened, what is clear is that this woman, this woman is riding the beast, who is riding the beast is some kind of Sophia, right? Um, in Proverbs, Sophia's wisdom. There's some kind of wisdom of the world, with some kind of spiritual belief, a religious system that encompasses all other nations and peoples. And we see this, we've seen this, right, where uh, any kind of political system tends to have a religious overtone to it. This happened all the way back in Nazi Germany, right? All the way back in Nazi Germany. The Nazi Germany just believed that, okay, this is God's chosen people. This is God's chosen race. This is God's chosen, chosen nation, right? That This is how it's supposed to be set up. God, this is what God wants. And I don't want to get too deep here. But any time that you operate with this idea of this is what God wants, this is what God wants specifically through this nation, you start to get in trouble. Let's, specific, let's talk about where we live, right? I want God to bless America. But I don't want God to bless America at the expense of every other nation and people. We want God to bless America. We want God to bless this nation. I live here. I grew up here. Right? We, but we also want God to bless every other nation and tribe and tongue. We want to hold things biblically because we believe that God has a plan behind all this. And so I don't know what it will look like in the future. I don't know if America will have a, uh, the United States will have a place in the end times, right? Look at the history of the world. Nations come, nations go, they rise, they fall. And I think for a lot of us, we think that, of course, America is going to be a hero story. But what we see is nations committing idolatry, committing immorality with this, with this woman. We have to be discerning spiritually and make sure that our primary allegiance, our primary allegiance, a allegiance is to Jesus. Allegiance above everything to Jesus. Like it says at the end there that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I love what Preston Sprinkle says on this. He says, the Christian proclamation that Jesus is king is an inherent political protest. It's a declaration that all other rulers are unworthy of our allegiance. So no matter where we are, no matter where we're at in, in the world, no matter what happens, as believers, our main concern should be, does the church of Jesus, does the, do the people of God are we faithful? Are we a faithful representation of what he wants in the world? And I'm going to close with this. I love verse 14 because these kings have handed over their allegiance. They've handed it all over to him. They've committed the adultery, right? They're lined up with 
with uh, the beast, and, and it says this, this battle is going to come. And all throughout, right, from Genesis to Revelation, you, you look forward to this battle. From the, the moment that, that God says that the Messiah is going to destroy the head of the snake, we look forward to God conquering evil. And so we expect this massive battle, right, this huge thing to come, sort, sort of like in uh, the movie uh, The uh, Endgame, right, all the superheroes where you expect like they've all aligned together on this evil side it says they've they've all the all the bad things in the world all aligned together to fight the lamb it says to to bring on to fight the lamb and i love how how simple scripture is i love just just what it says here it all leads up to this all good versus evil here we go final battle it just simply says, and the lamb will conquer them. And the lamb will conquer them. All of the evil in the world, right? All of it, the, the beast, the woman, like, all, the, like Satan, all of the evil, they, they go for this battle and he will conquer them. Why? Because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. See, I think in our, our, society, our Christian culture, right, we expect the lion to show up here, Right? We expect the lion, the lion of Judah, come, just rip off heads, go lion, go. But I believe the author uses the word lamb for a reason. That the kingdom of God, the, the following of Jesus is very countercultural. We expect the sword and we expect the fire and we expect the destruction and we expect like Jesus to just come and start, start taking names, right? It says that the Lord will conquer them. We expect muscle and weapons. It says, no, the, the lamb will conquer them. And, and then he says this, and those with him are called and chosen and what? Faithful. They're faithful. I love that. that in, the, in the grand scheme of things, who, who gets the glory? Jesus. Jesus gets the glory. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And I've made this mistake in my ministry. And this is what I've allowed to happen. This is what I've encouraged people to do. At the end of a message like this, I would historically, and until maybe this last week, I would have given you an opportunity to make Jesus your Lord. I would say something like this, that, that Jesus here shows that he is faithful and do you want to be faithful to him? Do you want to make him the Lord of your life? And then I was incredibly convicted this week as I was reading this passage is, is that Jesus doesn't need you to make him Lord. He is Lord. He doesn't need you to make him king. He is king. He doesn't need us. If you had the option to make him Lord, then who is really Lord? If you, if you lived in a nation and you go up to the king and you say, okay, and you know what? I'm gonna make you my king. What is the king gonna say? Away from me, peasant, I am your king. You live in my kingdom. You live in my world. Jesus is Lord. There is no, there is no debate. There is no question. In the end, he is king of kings and Lord of lords. You don't have the option to make him Lord. He is Lord. 
And what I want to give you the opportunity this morning is to recognize his lordship. To recognize his kingship. You don't give it to him. You pledge allegiance to him as king. Jesus is Lord. He is king. You receive that. You acknowledge that. You don't make that happen. You don't put Jesus on the throne. He's already on the throne. You don't make Jesus Lord. He's already Lord. Will you pledge allegiance to him? Will you give him everything? It's already his. He is Lord and everyone will acknowledge that. Every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess. Jesus is Lord.